General Odierno was very clear and he had said, look, the Army never really commissioned a true assessment of the Vietnam War. And as he indicated to us, we spent the first couple years of the Iraq War relearning the same lessons of the Vietnam War, paying in blood and treasure. It was about time that the United States Army in particular just look at the first kind of draft of history, do a first review of assessing the Iraq War. Hey, and welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI. And in the episode you're about to hear, MWI's Major Jake Moraldi talks to retired Colonel Frank Subcheck. He, along with retired Colonel Joel Rayburn, authored the Army's two-volume, 1,300-page study of the Iraq War. They began work on it in 2013 and completed it in 2016, but it was only finally released earlier this year. As you'll hear in this conversation, not only does he explain why it's important that the Army conducted a study like this, he also explains some of the reasons for its delay and really why there was actually some opposition to the project within the Army. He also reflects on some of the major conclusions they drew from all of the research they conducted. The study is an important piece of self-reflection for the Army, and the conversation, as you'll hear, is remarkably frank. Before we get to it, though, just a couple quick notes. First, if you're listening to the podcast soon after we publish it, we want to put the word out that MWI is currently accepting applications for our Fellows and Scholars programs. If you're interested in applying, you can find the full details on the MWI website at mwi.usma.edu. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, let's get to the conversation. Sir, thank you for taking the time to come and sit down and talk to us today. I appreciate you making the trip over to West Point. I really appreciate you inviting us, Jake. Thank you. So I want to give the, the listeners some context as to how this Iraq study report, if that's the, if I'm using the right title there, uh, came about, sort of what was the genesis of it and what was the rationale behind this study being commissioned? Yeah, so the genesis started in 2013. And then at the time, there was a series of kind of intellectual officers, uh, General McMaster, General Scales, uh, a couple others, who felt that it was about time that the United States Army in particular just look at the first kind of draft of history, do a first review of assessing the Iraq War. Um, you know, at that point, the U.S. had withdrawn 2011, and uh, the situation, while uh, not critical in Iraq at the time, was not great, um, but you know, there was definitely more to happen in the future. Um, they convinced the chief of staff of the Army, General Raymond Odierno, to commission the project. And after some kind of minor fits and starts and some, uh, you know, intra-agency competition with other groups such as the Center of Military History that perceived that they should be given the task, uh, our group was stood up. Uh, General Odierno sat us down, gave us kind of uh, you know, some specified tasks as well as uh, commander's intent. And the reasons why we were stood up focused on learning from the conflict. And General Odierno was very clear and he had said, look, the Army never really commissioned a true assessment of the Vietnam War. And, you know, the Center of Military History and other organizations are still working on the histories of the Vietnam War. And as you indicated to us, 
we spent the first couple years of the Iraq War relearning the same lessons of the Vietnam War, kind of paying in blood and treasure. And as a result, he wanted something to be able to be taken away uh, from initial kind of first look at history of what happened, what, you know, what went wrong, what went right, um, as well as explaining why decisions were made. Sure. He focused us at the operational level. Um, he said, look, you know, uh, I want you to look at the operational level. A lot of times that's not, you know, really explored. Mm -hmm. There's kind of the army and the defense industry has its own kind of internal coffee house debating society of what constitutes the operational level. And we were scoped kind of as the theater commander, corps commander in Iraq and the interactions both with uh, the strategic level in the United States, getting policy directive from the National Command Authority and CENTCOM, and then translating that into uh, campaigns, plans, and campaign strategy. Um, and dipping down into the tactical level kind of when it's need needed to kind of understand how it's interpreted, as well as uh, some kind of exploration of the most important debates and discussions at the operational to strategic level when those debates occurred. Um, we were, uh, he also explicitly tasked us, he said, this has to be unclassified. Uh, if it's a classified document, it's going to go the way of the you know, Ark of the Covenant. At the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, it'll go to some warehouse somewhere and no one will ever read it. Um, kind of with that same kind of you know, end state in mind, General Oyeno also told us, if you're controversial, I'm willing to underwrite you know, some controversy as long as it's professional. Sure. Um, and he said, in, in, in the big picture, I would rather have it be more controversial than less because I want people to read it. Mm -hmm. I want people to learn from it. I want people to actually want to pick it up and try to figure out, you know, why did we do what we do, did? What were the, th the thought processes of the major decision makers and what consequences did those have? Um, so those were, you know, the, the kind of the, the principal uh, objectives he gave us. He gave us a series of specified tasks, and I don't know if you want me to go into those specified tasks, you know, kind of key areas that he really wanted covered. Sure, yeah, I think I think that was going to actually be my next question, was talking about sort of major operational themes that were your, your guideposts while you're conducting yeah. this study. So one of the things he also directed us is he said, look, uh, you know, again, kind of on, on the premise of, I want this to be interesting, I want people to read it. Um, he Within the front office, there, there was kind of a call out by the you know, center of military history that, hey, when's the last time you've read a CMH document? Like, they're boring. Like, I, I don't want that. I want this to be interesting. Then he also uh, indicated, you know, I also don't want something that is, I mean, it has to have relevance. Um, and I don't want something that's kind of more along the lines of a very tactical, kind of broken up by battlefield operating system thematically. I don't want that. What I want is I want a narrative. I want a story that the readers will want to follow kind of from beginning to end to see the story arcs of, of key elements. And then he gave us specified tasks on, you know, Key areas. He, you know, he indicated. You know, first is you have to t discuss the campaign strategy, kind of its, its evolution, mm -hmm. its you know how it's created, um, how the senior leaders uh, 
crafted it in their minds in, in the process, the kind of uh, interactive process between policymakers and uniform personnel. Um, how did that carry out? Um, he said that had, had to occur. He said, we need to have a mature and professional discussion about civil military relations. It, it critically needs to be professional and it needs to obviously be from the position of, you know, that, you know, ultimate deference to civilian authorities. But we also need to have a discussion about what constitutes best military advice, what constitutes the military's role in that equation. You know, it's not necessarily just, you know, folding like Superman on laundry day and doing whatever we're told. You know, where, you know, what, what, is the, what is our role specifically? And, you know, he talked about a couple of occasions, you know, the disagreements early on with Secretary Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, later uh, the go to zero uh, discussion uh, and the withdrawal, as well as uh, some interactions he had uh, with the U.S. ambassador to Iraq, mm -hmm. uh, Chris Hill, Ambassador Chris Hill, um, and kind of just disputes there. He said uh, we had to have a discussion about uh, the National Guard and the reserve component because uh, as an active force, uh, as a, you know, the total force, uh, we need to have a, a review of that and an assessment. Uh, he indicated we needed to talk about allies and about the British role, about the, the role of, um, you know, multinational division, center south, mm -hmm. um, the Spanish, Italians, um, all the other Georgians. Um, who were there, Ukrainians. Uh, then uh, he knew we needed to talk somewhat about detention um, and that there was almost nothing written about detention in Vietnam and it was a major issue in Iraq. We, he d directed us to talk about the soft GPF uh, evolution, kind of the relationship, uh, how it started off really on the wrong foot um, how that relationship was very different from the invasion phase with soft getting their own battle space to once the general purpose forces became battle space owners and how that evolved over time. And he, you know, he saw it as kind of a success story of how it started as very much a challenge and problematic, but evolved into a functional uh, cooperation, symbiotic relationship and indicated that this is something we really need to capture because over time, once, you know, as you talked about before we, we started, once people start ending up with half the service doesn't have a right sleeve shoulder patch anymore, people are going to forget about this and start moving back to their old corners. He uh, indicated we need to have some discussions about the Marine Corps um, and include the Marine Corps uh, uh, within uh, MF West, Multinational Force West in Anbar Province. And part of that was that he scoped it as a ground, you know, ground force lessons, a, re a review of ground forces in Iraq. Mm. Um, he said, hey, I'm not really that concerned about space, cyber, you know, air, naval. Those are important stories that should be told at some point. But right now we need to look, talk about the land component. And when you talk about the land component, you have to talk allies, Marines, SOF, you know, all of the, the, the players. Um, so those were a lot of the, the kind of key indicators that he, or specified tasks that he gave us. So in 2013, when you're given this commission to write this study and the list that we just went through of, of themes to be looking at and incorporating into it, 
over a decade of military operations yeah. seems like a, a daunting task. Um, and I'm curious a little bit, uh, just briefly, kind of about the methodology, how you went about, uh, you know, cutting through all of the potential sources and, and histories that are available and, and synthesizing that into something that gets at what the chief was asking for. Yeah, well, it's that was, I mean, to be totally frank, it was very difficult. Um, and the military system, for, for a lot of reasons, the methodology is challenging. Um, there are something, I think, like 10 terabytes of data um, at the Center of Military History server. And they are all like literally dump truck style dumped into one uh, server um, with, and there may have been some changes in the last year or so, but when we were doing it in 2013, it was all dumped together. There was no ability to do anything other than a keyword, a correction, than a title search. It would not search within the documents. Um, that challenge was further complicated by that was not the only archive for primary source documents. Um, there are archives for documents at CENTCOM, Central Command. US SOCOM has its own archival uh, records. Each one of the senior leaders oftentimes had their own uh, set of papers, which were critical, again, because we were tasked with looking at the theater commanders and the corps commanders as the primary focus. Um, and some of those end up being having you know, two roles. Both you know, Odierno and General Austin have both roles. Uh, so you have multiple archives for documents at, at many different uh, locations. General Petraeus's archives for the, his personal papers were at uh, National Defense University uh, at Fort McNair, as well as General Casey's. Mm -hmm. uh, General Austin's were down at CENTCOM. Uh, General uh, Abizade's uh, were mixed between CENTCOM and Carlisle. And then General Sanchez, the CJTF-7 commander, uh, they were at uh, Carlisle also. Um, so you had kind of spread all over the place. Mm -hmm. We saw our baseline methodology, and I probably should have started with this, as mixing both primary source documents with oral history interviews. Sure. And we saw it as, as, a, as a symbiotic relationship. And we kind of caught some flack, and you know, at one point the Center of Military History actually wrote a letter uh, to the Vice Chief of Staff of the Army, like attacking our methodology, mm -hmm. kind of as attempt to regain control of the, the task, kind of that intergovernmental you know, competition, um, claiming that you know, we, focused, we should not focus at all on oral history interviews and that we should focus only on documents. And we fundamentally disagreed with that methodology for a, a couple reasons. Um, we felt that mixing both Documents and oral history interviews gave life to the story because, again, you're telling a story. You're having a narrative. It's not just, bam, this lesson learned or this you know, thematic subject like intel or detention or CSS. You know, to bring things to life, you have to tell stories. And so the oral history interviews have value there. The oral history interviews also had tremendous value in terms of, frankly, you know, in this day and age, Everyone knows that, let's just be blunt, 
there's stuff you don't put in email. Mm. There's stuff you don't write down that you as a commander, when I was a commander in Iraq, that I did not put in my official reports. And that when I saw my other subordinates, that I saw them face to face and I gave them that directive. There's also sometimes things that just can't be synthesized effectively into into documents. Mm -hmm. So we felt that while documents kind of had primacy and were the, the ultimate final arbiter, that if we excluded oral history, it would be doing a disservice to the narrative as well as even to the history itself. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at times, oral history interviews also gave us insight into where we should search in the archives. Again, because you've got this problem of, of you know, 20 or 30 terabytes of data, probably, you know, with, across the U.S., trying to sift through that. And to, to give an anecdote um, to, that's kind of explicative of, of this process where all history guided us to find you know, critical documents, w- one of the questions that we were trying to, to determine was uh, in 05, 2005, the, one of the main problem sets at the theater level, at least as a, the theater perceived it, was that there were between 75 to 150 foreign fighters flowing across the, the Syrian-Iraqi border, the you know, obviously western border, mm-hmm. um, per month. And that those were the, prim- the primary car bombers, V-beds, SV-beds in, in our vernacular. Sure. Um, and that those had to be stopped because that's what was creating sectarian violence in Baghdad and mm-hmm. it was destabilizing to the elections and that the elections which are perceived as this critical event might not be able to happen if they didn't stop them. And so we, uh, you know, we interviewed everyone from President Bush to four chairman of the Joint Chiefs, four CENTCOM commanders, every single one of the theater commanders. Uh, I had 24 hours of interviews myself with General Casey, 18 hours of interviews with like actual like hours uh, with General Sanchez. Um, and in one of the interviews with uh, General Meyer, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, we asked him the question, like, well, you know, sir, you have this theater problem um, of foreign fighters coming across. You know, what, what was your solution to that? How did you intend to address the problem? And kind of in an offhanded comment, he goes to us, yeah, you know, uh, John, you know, John Abizade and I, uh, Casey brought it up to us, George, you know, brought it to us, and we, John and I brought it to Rumsfeld to bomb the Damascus airport in the summer of 05 to close it down to foreign fighter flows. And, you know, as historians, we're all like, <laughs> there's no record of that. Like, this is the first time this is being uncovered. Um, so, like, you know, one of us fortunately thought, like, hey, sir, uh, do you remember what month that was in? Mm-hmm. And then he's like, oh yeah, I think it was August, uh, maybe July, July. And so sure enough, we then took another trip back to CENTCOM, refined our search down to those months, and we found the documents that matched what he indicated in all history. And we were able to not only describe that option, but the other options that CENTCOM presented to the joint staff, and then ultimately to the Secretary of Defense to resolve that problem. So I think we could go for hours and hours about the methodology, and, and it seems like it was a fascinating project to work on. How, how long was it in total duration from, from start to finish? 
Well, so the project started in 2013 in, in August, and it actually published in uh, January 2019. Um, that said, uh, there are a couple points where effectively around two and a half, three years that we were completed. We had a finished product that was still being, you know, for example, copy edited uh, in some cases, or maybe even print edited. Um, by 2017, our first volume was actually, we had a camera-ready indexed proof, mm -hmm. which is, you know, it's the final step before a book. And you don't make changes to that because any change could potentially change the indexing, so your whole indexing would have to be redone as a multi-week process. At that point, the chief of staff of the Army had changed. And the same kind of risk calculus and the willingness to be controversial, uh, let's just say had evaporated. And r rather than a willingness to underwrite risk, uh, there was a complete rejection of it. As a result, uh, it, this is a very long, I, mean, I could talk about this for like two hours, and I mean, I could write a book about it, and hopefully I will. Um, but to make matters as short as, as possible, uh, several things happened. There are multiple roadblocks kind of thrown in our way, kind of you know, bureaucratic roadblocks. Hey, have you talked to so-and-so? Have you talked to so-and-so? Hey, uh, I want this to be staffed by the vice chief staff of the Army, force comm commander, and trade-out commander. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, and when those four stars have read it, then bring it back to me. Um, and then, I'll, oh, I'm going to read every word in this 1,500-page paper as the chief of staff of the Army. Mm -hmm. Good luck with that. Um, at the kind of in, in you know concert, uh, there was this concept of, hey, uh, you know, uh, this is written to be the official military history originally, and operational level history of the war, and it was the, your publisher was going to be the center of military history, which you know they were really not happy about because they'd been kind of like forced at gunpoint to like be the publisher while somebody else did the research for them. Um, it was determined that. It was too controversial to have it as an official history of the Army, and so that the publisher would be changed to the Strategic Studies Institute at the Army War College at Carlisle, thereby creating a kind of political top cover in that, oh, well, those are just, you know, tweed jacket-wearing you know, academics with patches on the sleeves of their jackets, and it's academic freedom. This isn't an official history. Um, now, what that did was it had to go all the way back through academic review board, print editing, copy editing, and it's basically, you know, while well, all the research has been done, you're restarting the entire book writing process. Right. And it, you know, added a large amount of time to the process. So let's dig into the meat of it and, and kind of understand, not specifically because of that risk calculus, but because there's some, some valuable recommendations and a lot of work that went into kind of coming up with a, a better picture of what happened and why uh, in Iraq over the you know the first decade that we were there so let's sort of talk what some of those major recommendations were what were kind of the key findings yeah. that came out at the end of this you know six-year process so a, a couple key findings is you know one is that we have this, and I'm just going to be blunt, I'm going to call it a fetish. 
in the U.S. military and defense industry, in the U.S. in particular, there is a fetish of that technology will solve everything. And that, I mean, historically, you know, the concept is sent a bullet, not a man. And that a revolution in military affairs, when they occur, they so fundamentally alter the nature of warfare that, correct conduct, uh, that you do not need the same amount of ground forces. You know, that, the, that you can offset numbers of land power, of your land power component through technology, through technological advances in whether it be JDAM, you know, GPS guided bombs, laser guided bombs, better informational situational awareness, better awareness of the enemy, you know, through links to national level intelligence, through more UAVs and smaller UAVs, um, and that we can address all of those, you know, challenges through technology. And as a result, we really don't need either a big footprint in terms of a ground war, or we don't need a large ground forces. And, you know, one of the conclusions we find is that, you know, there are types of conflicts where an RMA really matters a lot. You know, probably more in the naval and air realm. Mm -hmm. But when you're involved in what is principally a ground conflict, the RMA only goes so far. And our efforts to incorporate elements of the RMA through transformation, kind of a process the Army went through from 2003 to probably 2008-9, um, were actually counterproductive in terms of fighting a counterinsurgency fight. And so kind of the, the broader lesson, you know, we derived out of that is that in many cases, numbers still matter um, for ground conflicts and that trying to offset, you know, ground forces through technology, you know, creates a huge risk. And oftentimes that risk, the, the harder you try to push that and try to kind of come to the conclusion that you know, things are so fundamentally changed that we just don't need large ground forces. I mean, and to a degree, I mean, they, the, the proponents of this theory uh, pointed to, you know, Operation Desert Storm, the conflict in 91, uh, the bombing campaign in Kosovo, uh, the, uh, the invasion of Afghanistan, the first phase, of course, where air power and soft, very small footprint was able to accomplish things that, that you know that was really the future way of warfare, and you know we said, hey, that you know it's smoke and mirrors. You know you got some snake oil sal salesmen effectively trying to convince us of something that just hasn't happened, mm -hmm. and that while there are types of warfare in, in regions where it, it would have more of an impact in a ground war in a counterinsurgency, it's counterproductive. So I think it's it's interesting that a lot of the the sort of findings at the end of the day revert back to the concept of risk, and and I find that interesting because in our discussions and in previous podcasts and in a lot of of talk, I feel like around the army and certainly within our office, this discussion of of risk, whether you're talking about true tactical level risk all the way up to sort of societal strategic level risk seems to be sort of a defining theme of, of how we understand ourselves as an institution and, and how 
the military writ large, but especially the army, is used in any sort of conflict. Um, so I'm curious what, what insight you have into that based on your, your understanding of the Iraq war and having gone through this whole process of yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I, I jokingly refer to us as an insurance agency. Um, and that, you know, we kind of in some ways have some institutional norms of, of insurance agencies, kind of, you know, reluctance to accept risk. And um, I, I think risk is kind of central to our profession. And, you know, everything we do, there's, there's a calculation, you know, of, you know, cost-benefit analysis as well as potential, you know, failure, chances, level of, of you know, results, damage, results uh, from that. I mean, for me, I think one of the challenges is in, in it, a lot of it was linked with civil military relations, but even in, in our own, some of it we did do ourselves. And, you know, we will always deal with risk and there always will be some risk, but when someone kind of tries to sell you that there is a universal salve that will resolve any ailments or problems and prevent you know you from making having to make hard choices i would strongly urge to reject that type of you know ideology and you know in in iraq the concept of transformation risk was a calculus built into that and there was a premise that, for example, in 05, uh, 2005, which is a critical year because three elections are held in that year, uh, that you, transformation could proceed because the risk in Iraq was not that large. And transformation meant pulling active component forces off the horse blanket, kind of the deployment schedule, and replacing them with a large number of guard brigades. Um, including a guard division for the first time since the Korean War. And, you know, that was a case where we bet on the roulette wheel and we lost. So. So the other thing I'm curious about is I can envision in, in my head, and we actually talked about this a little bit before the podcast, the argument being made that Yes, these are, that's probably a valid conclusion that maybe in this type of conflict we need to have more forces. You can't yeah. do it with technology. But I can see the counter argument being, well, that's not the type of conflict that we think we're going to fight or intend to fight in the future. So I'm curious how you see the, the findings from this study applying going forward or, or how they're manifesting themselves in the conflicts that we find ourselves in all over the world in 2019. Yeah. I mean, that, it's funny because that kind of became part of the justification for suppressing our study or for, you know, not publishing it in, in the means that it was originally going to be published. Um, was this notion that, hey, uh, the army is returning to decisive action, the, that our next conflict will be a peer or near peer, and as a result, this is a distraction. It's an intellectual and a public affairs distraction. Um, so I would profoundly reject that notion. And I would argue that potentially or that highly likely that the next conflict that we fight 
um, even if it is against a peer or near poor competitor, will have elements of the Iraq war in it. You know, there's a, there is extensive kind of almost ad nauseum discussion about conflict in the grave zone or hybrid warfare. And part of that is because it's, that's, you know, what we've been seeing. Even when, you know, a, one of our peer near peers invades, you know, a non near peer like Ukraine. You know, there's little green men or militias that show up. There are ethnic disputes. There are contested elections. Uh, there are militia groups on both sides. There are issues with detention of what do you do with these people who are not, or, you know, really part of a uniformed military, but they're saying they're not part of they're, the military. They're on leave. They're on leave, or they're, you know, con contractors. Um, what do you do with them? Uh, so a lot of the, like, the thorny issues that we dealt with in Iraq, I really believe we're going to be dealing with those again. Um, you know, when Russia, you know, took the Crimea, there wasn't, there weren't dags and rags or division artillery groups and regimental artillery groups firing deep fires and, you know, massed armor BMPs driving, you know, across the Crimean Peninsula. It was much, you know, more in the irregular warfare venue, which has many more linkages to, to Iraq. I think in, if you look at many of the regions around the world, um, you see that. I mean, you see that in the Baltic republics. You see that uh, in Venezuela. You see you know, the, ch the challenges of dealing with a failing or failed state, you know, which was kind of central to the, the challenge in Iraq, um, with a very heterogeneous population. Uh, we see that repeated uh, in, in many different locations. Um, I mean, even, for example, North Korea. If North Korea folded, you would have to deal with failed or failing state issues, albeit a much more you know, homogeneous population. But you're still going to have to deal with many of the same challenges. Um, you know, what do you deal with the politics afterwards? How do you integrate? How do you do you know, DDR, you know, demobilization, you know, disarmament, and reintegration? How, how do you do that? Um, these are things, I think, that we will have to be dealing with uh, in the next century. So this may be outside the scope of the study, but I think it's, I think maybe you can illuminate a little bit on, on this. Because the other thing that I'm hearing, especially in, in the talk of failed states or managing crises or those sorts of things, are the scope of the Army's mission, sort of what the role of the Army is and whether my job as a battalion commander or a brigade commander or a division commander should be destroying the enemy on the battlefield and that's it, or whether I have a much wider mandate than that. So I'm curious what, what you found and, and how that manifested itself in what you saw in, in Iraq. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good and deeply debated topic. Um, and I mean, I'm much of the uh, school that you have to have a broader background and that you have to be able to be prepared to deal with kind of the full spectrum of everything from force on force that, you know, you've got a company of BMPs advancing on your position to, you know, flipping, you know, quickly to dealing with, okay, well, 
there's a militia operating in the town behind us that potentially could cut our logistics, you know, tail. And if we don't, you know, act on that, everything else could collapse. Um, and there's political intelligence, humans kind of like ties to that. I just think that there is a notion that we have in, in the army, and it's kind of like our, our safe space, okay? It's like our comfort zone. Like we, we, we like grab our blankie and pass fire and, and kind of call back in the corner and say, oh, we, we don't, that's not our job. We don't do that. You know, we do World War II, Civil War, and the Napoleonic conflicts. That's what we do. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I think why it's kind of our safe space and we fall back on that is, frankly, we're good at that stuff. Um, are usually pretty good at it. And we default to it and, and try to claim that it's really our only job because, you know, we want to be successful. I mean, you know, we are a lot of AAA type personalities. It's part of the, you know, and, and we, we breed it, you know. I mean, we, we, we mercilessly to degree, you know, hunt individuals who are not AAA to extinction. Um, which I'm, I'm not saying that's a, it's a good thing. I mean, I'm glad. I'm a byproduct of that. But at the same time, you know, I think it, it, it creates a dangerous misperception of the type of warfare that I think that we'll have to fight. That is, you know, it's, it's much more, I, I, I don't know, it's not a great term for it, but, you know, it's more three-dimensional. It's more holistic. It's, you know, I, you have to be prepared for the full spectrum. And it's complicated. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying it's easy. I mean, it's hard. You only have so much training time. You only have so many resources. You know, everything is finite. Um, but, you know, at the same time, our safe space of, of falling back on just kind of, you know, whether we call it, quote, unquote, total war, which, which is a complete misnomer, um, or, you know, <clears throat> high intensity conflict, peer near peer. You know, I, I think that creates a lot of risk for us in the future. Well, sir, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you very much. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Jake. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love it if you could take just a second and leave a rating or give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is a great way you can help us reach new listeners interested in the types of topics that we feature. All right, thanks again. Thanks again.